Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, my name's uh, David Williams. I'm head of employment at uh, Camp Little. I'm delighted um, to be hosting this session. We're going to be talking about social technologies in the enterprise. Um, as part of today's session, we've been joined by uh, Tamara Littleton, who is the founding uh, partner of a, a social media agency, and she's going to talk about uh, crises that arise in a social media context. Um, Tamara's going to be followed by Rachel Boothroyd, who is a uh, consultant with the firm, and she's going to talk about the legal counsel's journey. Um, before, I'm going to finish off by briefly talking about some of the implications that arise from social media from an employment perspective. So without wasting any more time, I'm going to hand over to Tamara to, uh, to enlighten us on, on crises. Hello, everyone. Um, so I'm going to take you into the, uh, the murky world of uh, social media crises, or crisis, crises, um, and I'm going to uh, hopefully go through some case studies and also some practical advice. Um, and I'm going to use the medium of uh, B-movie imagery with a sci-fi twist. Um, all of the images have uh, got full copyright, so uh, you can all sleep at night. Um, so I think the key thing is, um, what does uh, a crisis actually look like? Um, I think there is a potential to assume that uh, social media can sort of be in its own little bubble and a social media crisis will just sort of come out of a social bubble, basically. Uh, the key thing is that if we go back to one of the, uh, the case studies that many people will be uh, aware of, which was the, uh, the Nestle issue, um, this is a very, very useful example to show that uh, most social media crises do come out of a real-world situation. Uh, this was connected to um, a very coordinated attack from Greenpeace uh, around uh, deforestation, uh, which was uh, the impact of uh, palm oil for, for Nestle. Um, but I think the interesting thing was actually how they dealt with it and the reason this became a case study that gets wheeled out by people like me uh, time and again um, is that it was the fact that on Facebook where people were driving to Facebook to attack Nestle as a result of, as I said, a coordinated attack using uh, demonstrations outside offices, etc., um, it was the way that those uh, Facebook comments were dealt with um, uh, in not a very coordinated way, uh, not a very well-managed way at the time. I mean, this was a couple of years ago now, and uh, things, a lot has been learned from that. So what was interesting also is that um, a lot of other companies were targeted by Greenpeace at the same time, uh, and yet they actually dealt with them very, very swiftly and changed their policies. Uh, Greenpeace were, sorry, Nestle were, were slower to change their policies, and as a result were continually attacked. So what issues are you likely to face as a, as a brand? And uh, I think it's important to know which are avoidable and, and also which are unavoidable, but how you can actually deal with them because it, it is possible to uh, manage even the, um, uh, the things that sort of come out of nowhere. So this is the, the reality now, is that news is breaking on Twitter the, uh, the very sort of famous image of the, uh, the Hudson River, the plane, uh, US Airways plane crashing on the Hudson River. Uh, this picture was actually taken by uh, someone using sort of TwitPic that then was picked up by all the news organizations. Uh, and this is because people are on the scene faster than journalists now. So this is just the reality. Um, however, you can't guarantee that all of these sort of rumors and news uh, sort of images will be uh, actually correct, and uh, there's a lot of incorrect information that goes out. So with, uh, with Qantas, uh, one of the issues that they had uh, back in uh, 2010 was that they had uh, part of their fuselage actually fell off and landed on an island where there happened to be two people who took a picture of it again on TwitPic, goes around Twitter, picked up by Reuters, who were then incorrectly reporting that the plane had actually crashed because they had a part of the Qantas uh, airline. Uh, people were actually still on the plane and still flying the plane, but panic actually ensued. 
what was interesting, again, is how they actually dealt with it behind the scenes. There were some very big tick points for Qantas at the time. They did actually put a YouTube video out which actually had the announcement from the pilot telling everyone to remain calm. And also they set up a, a helpline very quickly and they were uh, engaging with people on their social spaces. But where it can go a little bit wrong is that, um, for example, their Twitter account, they had very much a sort of a travel advertising-based Twitter account. And when people went there to try and sort of say what's actually going on, um, uh, basically people were not geared up to, to behave, to, 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 re to respond to a crisis, and were trying to gear people to sort of go to another Twitter account, which didn't actually exist. And so it wasn't very well managed from that point of view. And again, just using one from the archives uh, Primark, uh, when they were alerted to um, unethical uh, standards, so some of their uh, subcontracted factories had been uh, using child labor, and they were first alerted to this by the BBC, which is not the best way to find out. Um, but uh, the way that they reacted was, again, to react very, very swiftly and to uh, using social media, because they were being attacked on social media, to use social media to advise everybody of their new ways of working. And if you actually go to the Primark website, they now have a sort of a very strong presence on their site, uh, showing their, their ethical trading and uh, how they actually use uh, subcontractors, sub et cetera. So I'll come to some other case studies in a moment, but uh, going back to the... Um, to sort of a, a nice practical approach and an excuse to use some more sci-fi imagery. Um, I think the key thing is that, if I could just refer back to that social media should not be managed in a silo by just uh, an intern or a social media uh, very small team. It really affects so many people across the business. And uh, this is um, a potential team. I mean, the, the titles will change within each corporation and, and can be tweaked, and, and this is available on the, um, on the documents that you've got. Um, but, for example, it's important to have one person who is actually in charge, who calls on the rest of the team who've already been appointed. Um, so that might be uh, that there is someone from measurement and research. So this might be monitoring, so using things like Radian 6, um, I mean, there are about 200 different monitoring tools, but having something set up that is monitoring keywords and sentiment of what's being spoken about, <coughs> what people are saying about the brand, that's usually a way to spot a, a crisis bubbling up. But once it's actually happening and you're aware of it, you need to consistently monitor so that you can see whether the, uh, the crisis is actually getting better. Also, including PR and reputation management teams, um, again, as part of the wider team, these might be outsourced, so it's really important to have these very sort of close connections. Um, community management, uh, a, lot more, a lot more brands are actually having an internal community <coughs> manager or outsourcing to companies like us. Um, and again, when you have third parties, it's just so crucial to actually have the team communicating uh, constantly and also practicing. You can actually have a, a sort of a full test run of a crisis and check that all of the sort of telephone numbers are working and you have access to all of the different Facebook accounts that you need. Um, and also, you'll notice obviously that the legal team has mentioned there, there are lots of different elements, tech support, that will be pulled into the crisis team as necessary. And mentioning passwords, I mean, this is something that could be easily forgotten. But again, if you have someone who has admin, admin access to Facebook and you're being uh, attacked on Facebook, if someone with that password has gone on holiday, uh, you're in big trouble. So just making sure that these passwords are maintained, that they are collected and centrally uh, stored, people know what they're doing, um, and j just so many sort of things around that, really, and having an escalation path. But also just making sure that your overall crisis plan actually incorporates social. Um, many companies have a large-scale crisis plan, but do you have a, a notion of whether there is a social media policy for your employees to ensure that they're not actually sort of tweeting the wrong thing, for example? 
So again, some examples of when it's gone horribly wrong um, and how maybe it could have been done differently. DKNY, again, a concerted attack um, to do with um, uh, Peter and uh, sort of anti-fur. Essentially, this coordinated attack, I don't know how well you can see it on here, but uh, people actually commented on the, uh, the main corporate Facebook page and then at a, a certain time, switch their avatars to actually spell DK Bunny Butcher. So, uh, I mean, hats off, basically. I mean, it's quite an impressive coordinated attack. Um, but again, it's about reacting very, very swiftly, monitoring this, making sure that someone is moderating this, knows how to react, and, uh, you know, remove the comments if that's the, the best thing to do. Similar way, Versace, uh, when they were picked up for their sort of sandblasting approach that was uh, affecting people and um, uh, reports of people dying as a result of the way that they were manufacturing their, their genes. Um, and people will go to Facebook, start um, getting very angry. And it's important not to just uh, delete comments and, and only sort of show a very sort of sanitized version of of what you'd like people to see because it actually inflames people more. So it's about knowing what to remove, how to be consistent. And I think uh, just moving over to Twitter, the key thing is there have been a lot of brands have been caught out by not actually having a Twitter account. And then when something goes wrong that affects uh, the, the company or the brand, if you're not there, you can't defend yourself and you can't actually have a sensible conversation. Uh, Paper Chase uh, found this um, when they were accused of plagiarism, uh, copyright <coughs> issues, when they'd used some um, designs from an artist for their uh, wrapping paper. And this was found out, and it was actually uh, attacked on Twitter. They had to quickly stumble to get together a Twitter account so that they could actually uh, talk back to, to consumers. And the main Paper Chase account had actually been taken, so... Not very good. Um, with McVitie's, a similar sort of situation, but this was where the, uh, the advertisement that they used copied something that a comedian had already been doing and was on YouTube. This was found out by uh, people who then started sort of tweeting it around using the Twitter hashtag Hobrobs. Uh, which just goes to show that there is someone waiting for that moment for a brand to slip up just so they can use a really good pun. <laughs> and with Chrysler, I mean, I think this is, again, just being aware that sometimes it's down to um, either a, a rogue employee or, in this case, an, an agency. So uh, this was with Chrysler in Detroit where um, the Chrysler official Twitter account was used to actually say that I find it ironic that Detroit is known as the motor city and yet no one here knows how to drive. Insert only word here. Um, unfortunately, this was just human error in that the agency had used the wrong account. They'd used the agency, uh, the, the Chrysler account instead of their personal account. Um, <laughs> which actually, so, you know, human error does happen. Um, it actually then led to Chrysler being very, very sort of trying to be very transparent, which is something that we would advise, um, but you have to get it right because they then informed everybody that they'd, uh, that, that person had been sacked and that the agency had been sacked. And there is an argument uh, that maybe that's a little bit too much information, but um, just to be careful with those passwords. But also on Twitter, something uh, that uh, Entom, I can never say this, but Entoman, um, creators of lovely donuts and things like that in America, they used a not guilty hashtag uh, trying to sort of inspire people that, it, you know, really don't worry whether you want to eat a donut or not. Unfortunately, this hashtag at the same time was being used in a major court case in America um, for a, a child killer who was let off. So, ooh, ouch. Um, however, I think humour does play a big part in that actually, even though human error comes in, people can get it wrong. You can get it right again, even when you've got it wrong. And I know that you won't be able to see this at the back, but this was the American Red Cross who, um, again, someone was using the Twitter account. It's been reported that they may have had a couple of drinks while they were using the, the official Red Cross Twitter account uh, because they were saying that they'd found four more bottle, 
packs of dogfish heads Midas touch beer. Uh, when we drink, we do it right. Um, however, the Red Cross got in straight away, said, we've deleted the rogue tweet, but rest assured the Red Cross is sober and we've confiscated the keys. Um, a very nice touch. Also, behind the scenes, what happened is because they'd been promoting uh, Dogfish Head's Midas Touch beer, uh, that actually beer, that beer brand uh, then encouraged people to donate to the Red Cross. So it, it ended up being a really nice sort of uh, feel-good story rather than a, a social media disaster. So I think the key thing is that once something is out there, you can't necessarily control it, but you can uh, <coughs> direct it. And a good way to sort of think, again, is going back to your behind the scenes, is that it's also about having a reputation, you know, having a good reputation before a crisis hits will see you through a lot of uh, issues. And that community managers and seeing things in a more sort of social way, uh, you know, using humour in that way that the Red Cross uh, did, it's a great first line of defence. Uh, not, not, you know, used by all brands, of course. Um, but also that if you have ambassadors, if you have a good social presence, those people will actually defend you as well. Um, and I'll just touch on uh, a few sort of process and policies. Some things to have in, in place, again, these are sort of in the documents that you have, but it's really about being prepared. So if you have uh, documented policies, have a social media policy, an escalation process, it's all very sort of uh, important stuff, um, and ensuring that there are spokespeople and the right team in place to handle this and, and work together right across the, uh, the company. The other thing to be aware of is that there isn't much time these days. Uh, it used to be a case uh, from a PR point of view that you had about 24 hours to get a press release out and deal with an issue. You've got about, uh, about one to three hours now. Um, and also, talking directly back to people, going back to the monitoring, measuring their reaction, um, but also just be prepared for that you don't actually have to uh, respond everywhere. And um, the, the last point about avoiding firestorms is that uh, even if something bubbles up, don't feel that you do actually have to answer immediately. There might be some issues that are best left um, to sort of drift away. Um, and this is a handy action plan, which uh, you should probably put on a stress ball or a, a coffee mug or something. Um, but essentially, uh, it's about having your contact details for your crisis team. Um, actually, I won't read them all through because I think we sort of need to keep an awareness of time. Um, but really, it's just a 10 bullet point uh, tips for you to take back to people. Uh, print out and have on a T-shirt and you'll be ready for all crises. <laughs> Thank you. My name's Rachel Boothroyd, and I'm a consultant at Kemp Little, but I'm also in-house counsel for e-moderation, working with Tamara. Now, I know most of us in this room are, in fact, in-house counsel. So I thought we'd take a look at social media from the perspective of being in-house. Social media boom, lands on your desk as a problem to sort, and we'll go on that journey. Now, the job of the in-house lawyer feels a bit like this a lot of the time, doesn't it? You're balancing the interests of the business, the legal risk, the commercial requirements to try and reach the best outcome. And social media absolutely is one of those areas. So we have an issue on our desk. This is what we do. We assess what the risk is, what's the scope of that risk, what can we do about it, and what are the remedies if all else fails? So let's take a closer look at what we're talking about. We're talking about user-generated content brought out in all kinds of different forums. So it could be blogs, microblogs such as Twitter, or a separate forum, either Facebook, perhaps your company's Facebook page. And as Callum was talking about in the earlier presentation, the reason that internet advertising is booming is because you've got this fantastic relationship between the brand and the individual creating trust, which is a thing that every brand is really looking for with its consumers. But things can go wrong, as Tamara outlined. 
So what are we talking about? We're talking about video, music, text, pictures. The first legal risk that springs to mind is copyright, as the music industry has found very painfully over the last few years. Other IPR infringement that's relevant, trademarks in particular. Defamation, a great generator of cases in the UK. Then a very specific issue for certain brands is the child safety component. If you've got your children, they're growing up with these technologies. So bearing in mind the child safety component is absolutely vital. There's brand exposure. So that could be members of the public using your brand, as well as the classic exposures from things like obscenity, racial abuse, that kind of thing. You want to avoid any association between that and your brand. Finally, it's not just the customers that are using these media, it's also your employees. So breach of confidentiality is something David will be talking about that a little bit more. Now, some of you may say, for those first three on this slide, we don't actually need to worry about those because we've got this, the hosting defence. So Regulation 19, under the e-commerce regulations, coming out of the e-commerce directive, gives immunity, as long as the host doesn't have any knowledge, any authority, or any awareness. And once you receive a notice, then you take down the content. And that is true to some extent, but there are question marks over the reliability of the hosting defence. And part of this is coming through the very nature of social media, because it's not just a passive role that the host plays, because there is that interaction between the brand and the consumer. So in particular, we're looking at, um, under the directive, Recital 42, which emphasised the reason that this, this defence was being put in place was the nature of the passive role that was being played. Also, it doesn't address brand exposure at all. And as Tamara has shown us very graphically, that is a very real issue. Also, change may be on the way. Last year, we heard a lot about the defamation bill. And they're looking at replacing the notice and takedown procedure. The reason being that it restricts free speech. If as soon as anyone gets a notice of there being something wrong, the content is removed. There is no free open debate. The aim of the, or the discussion under the defamation bill is to draw a distinction between attributed comments and anonymous comments. So for attributed comments where people are willing to put their name next to what they're saying, if somebody complains, immunity is given just by publishing the complaint alongside the complaint about material. And then there's a built-in mechanism for a takedown or a leave-up order. For anonymous comments, it's pretty much the same as we've got now. So the scope, how far does this risk stretch right into the horizon? A good way to break down the scope is to look at where is this stuff coming from. So when we're talking about UGC, we're looking at content from employees and the public. Also, very interested parties, as we heard in the previous session, are the marketing teams, external and internal brand management and PR. And that's the area I'd just like to focus on for a minute. The IAB is getting a lot of mentions today, isn't it? Um, so the IAB issued some guidelines last year which um, were very helpful. These were inspired by the OFT investigation of the Handpicked Media case. Now, Handpicked Media were an organisation that paid bloggers to endorse brands. That's all very well, but the bloggers did not reveal that they were in fact paid to write rave reviews about certain products or services. And that was the problem. Uh, the OFT described it as a precedent-setting action. Now, the IAB estimate that about one in five of online retailers in the UK are non-compliant with applicable regulations. That's quite a big statistic. And what we're looking at is the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations. Uh, so it's not new law, it's just a restatement of what's already there. It's harmonised, so we can pretty much rely on this being the situation across Europe. And the type of issues that it's addressing are astroturfing. So the handpicked media example, where you've got a kind of fake environment where people think it's a genuine comment, but in fact it's paid for. And the other aspect is spamdexing, which is paid for content that's distorting the search engine results. So let's take a look at the letter of the law. Um, 
don't know if you can read that, but essentially what it's saying is use of editorial content in the media to promote a product where a trader has paid for the promotion without making it clear that the payment's been made. I suppose the interesting point there is the definition around what is editorial content in the media. You know, Ten years ago, we probably knew exactly what that is. But now, yes, it is tweets. It's even retweets. So that scope, making it really explicit within the social media context. Also, falsely claiming or creating the impression that the trader is not acting for purposes relating to his trade, business craft, and falsely representing themselves as a consumer. They distilled it down into three nice, neat guidelines. Uh, number one, disclose there's been a payment. Number two, adhering to the terms of platforms and terms that tend to get overlooked, which is the terms of search engines as well, because some of this payment is made specifically for the purpose of distorting search engine results. Finally, ensure that the marketing communication adheres with a cap code. Great, we all knew that. But the clarification is that these are marketing communications. And they gave some great examples. I'm not sure if you can read this at the back, but um, I, I sort of summarised them in a table. But they gave concrete examples of where the editorial content is, where the disclosure must be, and the attribute nofollow is uh, a technical piece of information that goes at the end that tells a search engine, discount this content for the purposes of search engine results. So you've got blog posts, it goes in the body of the blog, where there's a video included in the blog, again, it goes in that blog post, in the video if there is one. And this was really the launch of hashtag ad, hashtag spawn for Twitter, uh, which I saw was being uh, graphically used earlier this week with Jordan and Rio Ferdinand uh, raving about a particular chocolate bar. And they cleverly buried the hashtag spawn next to some other hashtags, so it didn't seem like as um, prominent as you might think it would be. For forum comments, followed the specified rules in the forum, and... An interesting point is, if there aren't any, to proactively request permission. I'm not sure how many um, advertisers actually do that. And for Facebook, it's not permitted. So another aspect of scope is geographical. And for us lawyers, ever since it started, the internet has been a problem because it does not conform with our neatly defined jurisdiction boundaries. So we don't know which law we're actually dealing with. So we got a bit of guidance last year from the ECJ, a case brought by Olivier Martinez in France against the Daily Mirror, which was accessible online in France. And there was a debate around could he actually bring an action. The, the case was concerning him getting back together with Kylie Minogue, hence the picture. Um, and the case was, the ECJ was looking at the jurisdiction point. So under Article 5.3 of the Brussels Convention, they were looking at where was the place where the harmful event occurred or may occur. So remember, we've got that online presence. So most of it was in the UK, but in theory, it could have been accessible anywhere. The ECJ gave us two clear options. One, the state of the claimant's interest, so in this case that would be France, or two, the publisher's state of establishment, so in this case that would be the UK. So that's a choice of two forms with either <coughs> one allowing for all damage to be claimed. Other states could be used as well, but that would only be for the damage that occurred in that particular state. So we've got multiple jurisdictions. We've got content coming from employees, from customers, from anywhere, in fact. So that can feel a bit, little bit like this. So you're the single lawyer and you're right, you've got the rest of the world giving you all this type of content. How do we manage that? And if there's any slide to go back to in this presentation, it's probably this one. Uh, because for social media, you've got lots of channels to assist in managing that risk. Firstly, there's the practical, so there are various software tools that can do filtering. There's crisis planning, so uh, Tamara mentioned the crises. There is a way of simulating those to deal with that, particularly that time pressure piece. Okay. Human moderation, and really important role for the lawyer here, because there are some policy decisions to be made about the risks presented by different types of content. So, for example, music content, some brands say, well, we're just not going to allow it because it is, in fact, so difficult 
to check whether we have the rights to reproduce it on our site or not. There's all the other aspects caught by moderation, so illegal, unlawful content, obscene, etc. The classic legal side, so the marketing agency terms, don't necessarily expect that the marketing agencies will be in compliance with the guidelines. Site terms and notices. Now, websites have had terms and conditions since they started, that's nothing new. But no doubt many of your organisations will be changing rapidly at the moment in how they are using social media. And it's important for the site terms and conditions to keep up with those changes. So there may be issues like um, asking people to consent to certain elements of the terms, telling people that there's going to be moderation, telling people that you may take down the content, considering at least the ownership of the user-generated content that, that's posted does your organisation actually want to own it? On the policy side, I'll come to that in a minute, the social media policy and other employee policies are relevant. And then the awareness, as I've put this as a separate piece because that really is part of the key to the balancing act here. Um, the internal communications, make sure the employees actually know the social media policy applies to them. And explaining the terms within any kind of site where you're using social media so that the users know what's actually happening. Picking up on Tamara's transparency point kind of goes all the way through. So social media policy, they say there are three key elements to that. Transparency, representation and responsibility. And it's a bit of a challenge on the legal side because it's not very prescriptive because in a sense it's, it's straying into somebody's private life, what they might do on LinkedIn, what they might do on Facebook. And really what you're asking people to do is exercise good judgment and give some education in that process. And it may be helpful to take a leaf out of the IAB guidelines and address the blind spots specifically, things that we may not even think about, um, just explain how they may occur and what to do in those events. Good website here, socialmediagovernance.com. Some great examples shared by lots of different companies. It's really interesting to see how others do it. So if all else goes wrong, you need to take some legal action against a social media user. As a lawyer, it can feel a bit like this. Because the first question is, who are we dealing with? I thought we'd finish up by taking a look at Twitter and the courts in 2011 where exactly that issue of who are we dealing with came to the fore. And this could be subtitled uh, Twitter and the downfall of the super injunction. So this time last year it was that there was just some press reports about super injunctions that they existed. And this was then picked up by the foreign press and Twitter which brought it back into the UK as something we know about. The Sun ran stories with no names. We had the Andrew Marr confession. Um, we had lots of talk about it, but no exposure. Then in May, the critical time came, and that was through social media, where a Twitter user exposed the celebrities. And at its peak, one in every 200 visits was to look at that exposure. Of course, technically, it was a breach of the super injunction. And uh, Ryan Giggs' lawyers sought a disclosure order through the UK courts and went to enforce it in California. Big jurisdictional issue. Um, and in fact, it, it went away before it was resolved, but there was a lot of controversy about would that disclosure ever actually have been made. On a completely separate incident, South Tyneside Council did actually secure disclosure of a tweeter's name from Twitter. They took a different approach to Giggs lawyers. They went through the California courts. They got a disclosure order and the information was given. But the crucial difference here was the individual consented to that disclosure. And that meant that South Townside Council succeeded where the US government failed. Uh, they were seeking disclosure of the tweeters' names who were uh, responsible for WikiLeaks and those individuals were not happy to be disclosed, not, not surprisingly. Uh, so that is still ongoing. So we've taken a look at the landscape and the risks, what's on the to-do list. I think my, my predominant message is picking up again on, on something that Tamara said, is ensure that legal is involved. A lot of these areas can be seen as perhaps a pure PR area, um, but legal has a very valuable role to play. 
um, check whether there's use of tools and moderation to manage the legal risks such as copyright, have an escalation procedure and a plan for crisis, terms and conditions of use and access, keep those updated for the changing social media landscape, check out your media agency terms and get a good social media policy and make sure that's communicated internally, which I think is what David's going to talk to you more about. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Rachel. Um, so I'm going to move on to look at the employment perspective. Um, and I'm going to concentrate on things that go wrong, things that you can do about it, things to avoid uh, some problems. But I'm going to start off um, with a few examples. Um, the first one is John Flexman. I don't know if anyone saw any stories about John Flexman uh, in the papers. It was in the Mail, the Metro, uh, uh, last week, I believe. Um, basically, he was merrily working for his company. He had a LinkedIn site, and he decided as the HR manager that maybe he would look for some career opportunities, and he ticked the career opportunities box. And his uh, employer helpfully decided that they were going to help him with his career uh, <laughs> by, by firing him, so um, it would help him get another job. Um, so they terminated his employment, and he has brought a claim for unfair dismissal. <coughs> Um, I, I'm wondering whether it's just that box is the whole issue, um, because in, in law, at least under the uh, traditional test, there is nothing to stop an employee uh, looking for uh, a, a another job. Um, but I also suspect there was an issue in, in terms of taking confidential information, which hasn't actually come out uh, too much in the, the public forum, but I, I don't quite know. So let's look at some of the other examples. Um, one of my favourite is uh, this young lady. Uh, I think her name is uh, Connor uh, Riley. Uh, she uh, tweeted, and I shall read you the tweet, uh, Cisco just offered me a job. Now I have to weigh up the utility of a fatty paycheck against the daily commute to San Jose and hating the work. She, tweet, she was supposed to tweet it just to her friends, but uh, uh, accidentally tweeted it to the whole world, um, including Cisco, um, who weren't too impressed, and they said that they were going to help her with that debate, and they decided to withdraw the job offer. Uh, so in a recession, she tweeted herself, uh, out of a job. And it just demonstrates that it's not just the termination of the employment, but social media really embraces every element of the, uh, the, the, the employment relationship from the cradle uh, to the grave. And on that note, what are we going to talk about in this brief session? Um, I'm going to talk about the use of social media in recruitment. I'm then going to move on to the term of employment. And in, in that context, I'm going to focus on some issues that are arising in the context of monitoring under both the Data Protection Act and also the Human Rights Act. I'm then going to look at a few areas where there's potential exposure to the business from an employment perspective, building on uh, some, of the, some of the concepts that Rachel has been talking about. And finally, I'm going to come back to LinkedIn. So I started with LinkedIn. I'm going to finish with LinkedIn. LinkedIn or social media sites like LinkedIn are very dangerous from the employee. You have a database. Someone leaves. They take that database essentially with them. And that's causing all sorts of issues. And what are employers, what are businesses trying to do to deal with that? And how successful have they been? So let's start off uh, by looking at uh, recruitment. Uh, helpfully here, Microsoft um, um, uh, gave us some statistics. Um, and the statistics were that uh, uh, apparently 41% of recruiters, employers, have turned candidates down for things that they have found on uh, uh, social media sites. And that's quite interesting because 80% of employers realize that a lot of the stuff on social media is kind of rubbish in terms of this assessment and that the information is often inaccurate. But it seems that only 60 or between 60 and 70% of employers actually take steps to verify the information. So is that problematic? Well, potentially it is. There's two main risk areas. The first one is discrimination. If you look on a social media site and you find something potentially discriminatory, for example, uh, about their sexuality or gender or something like that, and then you turn them down, there is a risk of a discrimination complaint. And indeed, the fact you've looked at the site and then turned them down would mean that the employee may have a, or the candidate may have a prima facie case uh, for discrimination, in respect of which the burden then shifts to the employer who has to approve that there is no discrimination whatsoever. So it's a bit of a harsh test. Also, we have the, the, the groaning and creaking world of Data Protection Act. I'm not sure it was necessarily designed 
uh, to deal with social media, but it's trying to grapple with the issue. So we have some guiding uh, principles dealing with processing, and this would be processing. So applicants should know what information is being uh, collected. Um, collecting information covertly is unlikely to be justified. Uh, Organisations should not collect more data than is needed. Uh, avoid collecting information that is irrelevant, excessive. So what does that actually mean? Um, well, what it means is you should have a policy, and the policy should cover four areas. Firstly, the business should think about, okay, if we're going to look at social media, what should we look at? Are we going to look at everything? Should we look at Facebook? Or should we, uh, what I would suggest, just concentrate on more business-orientated sites, perhaps the, the former website of the employer or LinkedIn or something of that nature? Secondly, you should tell candidates, and you can tell them in reasonably generic terms, but you should tell candidates, actually, we're going to do these searches. We are going to look into your background over the internet, uh, just so you're aware of it. Thirdly, and quite controversially, if you find something that is worrying, then it is good practice to talk to the candidate about it. For example, if they've said something derogatory about their former employer, you might want to understand the circumstances relating to that. Obviously, you have to exercise some judgment. And the final thing, and one of the most important aspects, is to record your decision-making process. If you reject someone, it's useful to record at the time why you did it, on, obviously on, on non-discriminatory grounds, if at all possible. So that's recruitment, and that takes us into the employment relationship. So you get past that stage, then what's, what are the car crashes that happen in the employment relationship. Well, I'm going to start off with monitoring. Um, so there's various legislation dealing with monitoring, some dealing with interception of communications, RIPA, telecommunication regulations. But I'm going to concentrate on the uh, Data uh, Protection Act. And there are some guiding principles here. So um, it needs to be fair and lawful processing, data to be adequate, relevant, and non-excessive, data to be subject to adequate technical organizational measures, etc., etc., set out on the slide. But what does that mean in practice? Well, we're lucky we have the Employee Practices Code, which sets out some guidance. And there are three stages uh, to that. Um, the first one is you need to recognize that employees have a right to privacy, even at work. So that's the first thing you need to bear in mind. The second is you need to take a proportionate approach. And a proportionate approach means weighing up the, the, the need for the monitoring against the downside to the employee, clearly the invasion in terms, of their, in terms of their privacy. And the final stage, actually a key stage, is actually to undertake a risk assessment. To sit down with a piece of paper and say, okay, why do we need to do this? How are we gonna compare the need against the downside for the employees? What are the regulatory requirements? What are the risks? Is there an alternative? And once you've done that, make a value judgment. And, and explain the reasons for that. If you go through that process, then that will protect you. So um, the other aspect of um, monitoring uh, is thinking about issues under the, the Human um, Rights uh, Act. And in, in particular, uh, Article 8, the respect for family life and the, the private life. Um, and one of my favorite cases in this context is um, Pay in the United Kingdom. Um, Pay was a probation officer um, who had a pastime of being involved in sadomasochistic activities. And uh, I don't know why, but he decided to put some pictures of himself or one of his friends put some pictures of him on an internet site. And the probationary service discovered these and decided to terminate his employment. He said that was an invasion of his privacy. So off they all trooped to, to the courts. And the court said, well, mm, it's a bit of a tricky one, this. Um, normally, if you were just a normal employee, it would probably be fine. You, you should be allowed to get on with whatever you want in your private life. But here there was a crossover. There was a crossover between your work. You're a probationary officer, and he was, in particular, he was a probationary officer dealing with sexual offenders. And because of that, they, they decided to tip the balance, and consequently, the dismissal was fair in all the circumstances. So what other exposures uh, arise uh, to the enterprise? Well, I suppose the first one is, you know, vicarious liability. The employee does something and the employer is deemed to be liable, for example, in relation to discrimination. And the key here, the key concept here, is whether the activity occurred in the course of employment. And I think a, a useful case on this, or something that demonstrates some of the friction, is the Gosden case. 
In the Gosling case, the case involved a social worker. And he went home, and he was on his home computer, and he decided to send an email uh, to a, a, a colleague, but to his uh, home computer, and it was a private email, but that email contained sexist and racist comments. Um, unfortunately for Mr. Gosling, he said, feel free to forward this on, which was potentially fatal. Anyway, um, the other chap did. His employer discovered it and decided to terminate his employment. And of course, Mr. Gosling turned around and said, well, actually, you know, this is private. This is something I sent. had nothing to do with my work. It was between one home computer and another home computer. So it's a little bit unfair to terminate my employment on that basis. Well, the courts didn't agree. And I think the interesting thing was not, not really his comment about feel free to forward this on. They said, you know, that didn't help him, but it wasn't really fatal to the issues. What they said was really interesting is, once you sent this email on, you had lost control as to what was going to happen to it. It was open to the, the next person, the recipient, to send it on or to do whatever they liked with it. You had lost control. You had essentially sent it to, effectively, the public domain. And because you did it, it was right for your employer to rely on it, and consequently, the uh, termination of the employment was fair. So what's the other potential exposure? We talked about some of the damage to the reputation. And that can happen in brand, and we can deal with defamation. But in employment context, this often lead, leads to the individual um, being terminated. And one of the interesting cases here is the Taylor and Summerfield case. In this case, there was a video of two employees hitting each other with plastic bags. And it became a, an internet sensation. Um, it had eight views on uh, YouTube, um, and three of those views were the person investigating it and the disciplinary officer and the person who dealt with the appeal. And, and Taylor was, was terminated. He brought a claim for unfair dismissal. And, uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the court said, well, actually, the termination in those circumstances is a little bit disproportionate. Actually, interesting, I, I typed in Summerfield into YouTube, and I found hundreds of videos of people going down on trolleys and all sorts of things by uh, seemingly uh, employees, and I presume they're still uh, in employment uh, after that president. So the next case is Priest. Um, so Priest worked for um, uh, Weatherspoons and had to talk to the regulars and presumably got a bit fed up with them. So on his own personal, and it's interesting to bear in mind, personal Facebook page, he decided to say, God, these customers are awful, or whatever he says. He says something derogatory. His employer found out and terminated his employment. But the court said that was fair. And the reason they said it was fair was because the employer had a policy that said you mustn't, on any social media context, you mustn't say anything about our customers. And because of that, the dismissal was fair. So bear in mind a policy, and we'll come back to that concept. Next is the loss of produ uh, productivity. Not many cases on this, uh, but there was a case of uh, Grant, which was two sisters who uh, spent hours and hours on the internet, and they, they, their, their employment was terminated. So they brought a claim for unfair dismissal. And in this case, there was a policy, but the policy wasn't clear. It said employees could access the internet, but not in a disproportionate way, and there was references to outside hours and all these sorts of things, maybe in lunch break. But it wasn't sufficiently clear to rely on. So the company had gone so far, but because their policy wasn't particularly helpful, it didn't quite get them there. So what's the way of minimizing potential exposure? Well, from the previous slide, mentioned twice, policy. Policy, policy, policy is absolutely imperative here. Set out what you want, set out what you need, set out what the consequences are. Um, and I've got some guidance on the slide that I'll, I'll let you read in your own time. And if anyone wants a sample policy, uh, come and see me after the session. So finally, I'm going to deal with issues that arise on termination and confidentiality issues. You recall that I started uh, with a chap on LinkedIn. And that was a personal consequence for him being fired. And incidentally, I'd suggest that that would be unfair. But the other issue is it, LinkedIn is a, is a great danger to a business. You know, you can have an employee who puts all their contacts on LinkedIn, and then they decide to leave. And when they leave, they go to their new employer, and they simply have to change their details and say, look, chaps, I'm, I'm now at employer Y. And that notification goes out to all the contacts. Now, that's not solicitation. It's not a breach of any sort of implied duties. 
It's something that someone is perfectly able to do. And in the light of those consequences, employers have, have sought in three principal ways to try and restrain that sort of action with limited degrees of success. Firstly, dealing with uh, confidentiality. A couple of cases here. First one was Irons, and he did exactly that. He, he took the database, he, he knew he was going to leave, and he put it all on LinkedIn so he could take it with him in what he perceived to be a legitimate way. Um, and this case involved pre-action disclosure. And he argued, in all, and the company argued, in order to get pre-action disclosure, that there could be a breach of confidence. And the courts agreed there could be and allowed the disclosure. But we don't know what happened afterwards. We don't know whether the court actually felt there was a breach of confidence in those circumstances. The next case is the, the case involving Mr. Ayers, uh, which um, was, uh, that case involved a Rolodex, which uh, is apparently lots of cards um, in a roller thing. I mean, you know, crikey, I was, you know, before I was born probably. Um, anyway, he took this with him to his new employer. And um, in taking it with him, the employer said, well, actually, that's a breach of confidence. We're, 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 not, you know, we're not happy about that, and they, they, they brought a claim. And that claim failed. And there was two principal reasons for that. The first one is the court said, well, you know, even if it was confidential, it could be reconstituted in you know, three and a half hours. We're not, we're not going to allow any, any sort of protection in those circumstances. But the second thing that was essentially fatal to that claim was that a lot of the information uh, uh, appeared on the website. The company didn't appear to take confidential information relating to its clients particularly seriously, and that was picked up by the courts and another reason why the, the, the claim failed. So the, the second uh, approach that companies have taken is, is by applying the database regulations, the 1997 regulations. So there is essentially a background case to this, the William Hill case that said, if you want to protect rights in relation to your database, then you need to make a substantial investment in that database. So in that case, there was um, a database of horses and races and who won. But they said, well, actually, that's just a collation of data. You haven't really done too much more to it in order to have a protectable right. And that led to the Penwell publishing case. That's an interesting case because essentially in that case, an individual took his Outlook database, and when he joined his employer, he brought the whole database with him and merged it with his employers. So when he came to leave, he thought there would be no problem in actually taking the larger list and taking it to the new employer. Well, the court said, no, actually, you can't do that because that, the database is, protect, is protected under the database regulations. But the interesting thing about the Penwell case is it really didn't really consider the implications of the William Hill, whether the employer had really made a substantial investment in that database in order for it to be protectable. So I'm not sure the Penwell case is necessarily something that employers can rely on going forward. So where does that leave us? Well, it really leaves us with express contractual terms. And principally, those are going to involve restrictive covenants. And you recall when I mentioned earlier that if you take LinkedIn, you move, and there's... there's uh, an email that goes out, that's not solicitation. So what should employers be thinking about in order to protect themselves in these circumstances? Well, I think the answer to that is that employers should think about non-post-employment, non-dealing provisions. I, you know, it's very difficult to spot solicitation. It's very, very difficult to monitor solicitation. But it's much easier to work out whether the individual is working with a former client or former prospect. So as long as those covenants are drafted in a reasonable and proportionate way, then in this context, that's probably the best way of protecting the business. So what should you take away from all this? Um, well, I think the answer is you know, make sure your policies are up to speed. Uh, if you want protection, make sure you set out um, what you need uh, and how that's going to be applied. Make sure that the staff are aware of the policies, they know how to apply them, and they know what they involve and also make sure your contractual terms, including your restrictive covenants, uh, are up to date. Right, well, I think that's uh, 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 enough from me. We have, uh, I think, five minutes or so for any questions. We have a sort of Q&A session, so I don't know if anyone's got any questions for myself or Rachel or, or Tamara on uh, social uh, technologies in the enterprise. Well, whilst you will waiting there with your burning questions, I shall, I shall um, start off um, by 
uh, asking Tamara, um, I, you mentioned companies need to prepare for these sort of crises and hope they never come, but in your experience, how prepared are companies? Is it something they commonly do or is it something they're commonly, commonly ignoring? Um, I, I think um, I, I think a lot of people are getting it a bit wrong and perhaps underestimating uh, the great public. I was going to say the great British public, but it's a global public, of course. Um, we see uh, quite a lot of rookie errors, I suppose, just sort of assuming that just because a marketing campaign sounds really good and wonderful, that everyone is going to get right behind it, whereas actually uh, McDonald's have just been caught out this week, um, Vodafone fairly recently. Um, so I, I think, but it, so I think uh, I, I'm still sort of speaking to, to large corporations who are perhaps not prepared. Um, but it's getting better, and I think this year we're seeing a real change to people actually wanting to incorporate social media right into the heart of the business, rather than seeing as some sort of fun marketing thing that um, that's going to just pass away soon. So it's it's getting better. We, whilst I, I know you're still sitting on your burning questions there, so I'm going to ask one for Rachel. Um, in your experience, you know you talked about some of the cases that are coming out of Twitter. But do you think companies are concentrating on sort of trying to sort out the brand practically and deal with the crisis management? Or, or do you think they're you know, more going towards the litigious side in, in, in trying to resolve issues? I think there's a bit of a split going on at the moment about the approach from legal versus the approach from the marketing team, um, which is why you know, get involved as lawyers is, is kind of the message to, to stop that separation happening. Um, because as much managing it well from a PR angle may avoid the case happening um, in the first place. For example, you know, was Ryan Giggs really well advised to bring that action? Uh, in retrospect, possibly not, but that may have been a purely legal take and not so much on the PR side. So it's, it's like Tamara's slide had it really graphically done very well. It really is bringing together a full team with all those different... Um, specialisms, because we all want to avoid going to court, basically. Has anyone got any questions? Yes. Yes. Yep. Sure. Yep. Okay. Um, the question is, um, you know, what happens to people taking their Twitter accounts and essentially I think what, what can businesses do about that? And actually I think there was that one case involving someone, I can't remember if it was from the BBC or ITV, it was from the BBC. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, and um, as I understand that, that was resolved. In fact, I think they were allowed to take their Twitter account with them in, in, in that instance, but I don't know all the ins and outs of it. If you want to restrain someone in the UK, you would have to have a clear policy and you would probably need to, them to sign up to some sort of contractual term saying if they do this, then they do it in your name. And when the employment comes to an end, they'll have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there haven't been any cases on that. And I think it's really quite an interesting thing because, you know, under the Human Rights Convention, you have the right to, to, to expand your, 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 your business relations. And how, how is that all going to become involved? The other issue, in, in not just in Twitter, it's coming into the kind of restraint of trade. If you built this up, this is your, your indiv individual reputation, whether the courts are going to say that that's something that's enforceable. I rather suspect if you've got a clear policy, a clear contractual term saying you have to hand it back or you can't continue to use it, that may be enforceable. But I suspect that actually from a brand management perspective, and tomorrow probably um, um, you know this better than me, actually that could be quite a dangerous thing to do because it looks like you're controlling the market in potentially um, a negative way. No, I, th I think it's a very key point actually because it's a very sort of non-social media thing to do because the, the, the key thing is you want to encourage people to be enthusiastic about the brand if they're working there and talk about it from their own voice and I, I would say that it's just very much part of life that if they move on they there should be sort of goodwill and they should yep. be allowed to, to go if however there was a, a, a joint like a, a corporate account I mean that would be very much if it was a personality like a you know a writer for a, a paper or something like that but um, if it was a, a branded corporate account there are some very practical things that can be done by having several people have access um, I know that BBC Travel as an account does this very well where they, they have a, 
you know, they, they sign off who's actually tweeting from the account so that you're covering your options. So if one person did leave, the, the whole voice hasn't suddenly gone. But you can define the, the voice that you want as part of a branding exercise. Yeah, taking practical steps to deal with it. Um, yes, you... Um, since you've raised that case, I wonder, surely the point about Laura Kunisberg is that, uh, and Twitter is that I, ch I choose whether or not to follow, follow uh, this person, not Laura Kunisberg accepting me. I mean, she could choose to have blocked me, but I choose to follow her. So I was slightly unclear what the issue was in the first place because it seems to be all about my decision to follow or indeed yep. get fed up with her defection rather yes. than anything to do with BBC. Yes. I mean, Rachel, do you want to... Um well, picking up on, on Tamara's point, it, that is about the essence of social media. You know, it, it's empowerment to the individual, which is a wonderful thing and also a dangerous thing. Um, but I think it's just the way people view these accounts on a corporate level. You know, X has X million followers, and therefore that has a certain value, you know, not taking into account that every single one of those followers could just decide tomorrow not, not to, to follow them. And presumably if someone went very much against the the feel of social media and change the voice like Tamara was talking about, um, people would, would vote and just unfollow them. Right. Has anyone got any other questions? Okay, no. Um, well, um, I'm going to wrap the session up there. I'm going to thank mm -hmm. uh, Rachel and, and Tamara. Thank you very much for your talks. We are around in the break. If anyone would like to come and ask us any questions, uh, we're, we're happy to deal with those. And um, I think if you um, just proceed through the doors, I understand that... Uh, 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 coffee is going to be served outside. I've got someone nodding their head at the back, so that generally believes I'm on the right line. So uh, thank you very much.